Yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. Episode 46, Two Twins and an Album. Welcome, everybody. See how you doing today? I am doing fabulously well. Very excited about today's guest on the old podcast here. Super, super excited. We're going to go back in time 17 years. We'll talk to our special guest about that because I cannot believe today's album came out 17 years ago, but we are thrilled, honored, excited, privileged to have joining us the, I mean, I, the list of, of credits is long for Sparta, vocalist, guitarist. I know you do some keyboards, Jim, songwriter, director of all things, head man, front man, leader. Thorn in the side. <laughs> <laughs> welcome everybody jim ward to two twins in an album jim it is awesome to have you join us we really appreciate it thank you for having me jim of course your your credits go beyond sparta and we'll get into that a little bit but let's just talk a little bit about the last year first and foremost how are you doing and how have you navigated through uh this really drama free 2020 i mean not much has happened right i mean it's kind of been uneventful <laughs> yeah yeah just kind of same old same old <laughs> How is it being off the road? You know, we've had a couple musicians join us that have had to, you know, be on the sidelines for the last year and two months. Obviously, you've been very busy in other ways, which we'll get to, but talk a little bit about, um, you know, just what it's been like to sort of be sitting still for this long. So I, I actually, at the end of the threes record, the Sparta record threes, I, I sort of went off the full-time circuit and I did a, I did a side band I have called Sleeper Car which was a bunch of like really old school touring where it's just like me and the dudes in a band and like sleeping at people's houses. And I sort of needed a reset. I was just pretty burned out at the end of threes, sort of the, the full staff burnout, you know, like where I just needed to take it back. And then when I was done with the sleeper card tour, I sort of just stayed home for a while and I just decided to not make my living on the road anymore. So I, I started some things in El Paso with my wife and some friends and you know, sort of reinvented myself for a, a good number of years and then would sort of tour here and there a little bit. Um, but then in 2018, sort of fired up Sparta again, made a record in 2019. And I was supposed to, well, it came out in April of 2020 and there was a pretty massive list of shows to be announced and then canceled and then postponed and then announced and canceled. And then, you know, yeah. And then just like everybody, the train went off the track and that's, that's where I was in, in August of 2020. And that's, made this record a new record i have to thank you personally because 2020 was such a shit year but one of the good days was sparta has a new album out we're, we're in southeast michigan and that was during a time where we were pretty well shut in and i spent a lot of time just digging into trust the river and it was a bright spot in an otherwise really crappy time period for us so thank you um, it, it's it's just really really cool to have sparta back and uh and albeit in a little different formation and personnel, obviously, than the album that we'll look at tonight, which is 2004's yeah. Porcelain. But I managed to check you guys out. You played a smashing gig at the Blind Pig in Ann Arbor. Oh, yeah, you were there. That's awesome. Yeah, I was there. I was there. And, and uh, what a great night. It, it, looked like, it looked like you're really enjoying this new lineup and you're kind of back to oh. the basics. And even to play the Blind Pig is, is a very cool venue for you guys to be at. I, I had a super good time. You know, that day we walked from the Blind Pig about 
um, I don't know, a mile and a half, two miles to a, to a brewery, to a brew pub. Uh, me and my wife, Christine and Matt Miller, we all walked up there and, and had a beer. And I think we took a car back cause we were lazy, but that's the stuff that I missed. You know, that's the stuff that I missed when you're sort of full-time full-blown craziness. And there's 50 salaries that you got to worry about, et cetera, et cetera. And what I like to do is play music and, and have a good time and meet people and hang out. And, you know, I love little rooms. That's where if I could be all the time and make a living, then I probably would do that, which is what we're trying to work on now, which is just building multiple days in cities. And instead of trying to max out every city every day, I'm like, you know, what? I, I want to spend three nights in San Francisco. So put me in the room that I could sell three nights in and and that way I can go see my friends and eat breakfast and go see bookstores and, you know, do the stuff that I want to do. Also that, that show was the worst hotel experience of the entire tour. Cause <laughs> I like, I like to book on the fly. So I don't like to have like a huge plan. And this is the problem when you play with me is that I don't have a, much of a plan other than we're going to be in Ann Arbor. And then, you know, the next day we're going to be somewhere else. So in between that, we'll sleep somewhere. I didn't realize that that was like the first football game of the year. That night, yes, it was in the fall. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so I was like going through hotel, and I was like to the point where I was like, I will spend any amount of money. I don't care. And we ended up in just like in like just the Bates Motel of Ann Arbor. It was awful. <laughs> super awful. And I just remember like we're not super snobby dudes by any means, but like checking in and then looking behind me at the rest of the dudes and my and because my wife travels with me, like looking back at them and everyone was just like, oh, we're gonna fucking kill you. <laughs> Was there like a sign outside that said like, we have color TV, you know, one of the, one of those type of places. <laughs> it said we have, um, yeah, we have phones. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jim, here's the beauty of it. Next time you come, all you gotta do is call T or I, you can crash in our garage. You know, now oh, you right. got a, now you got a constant place to crash when you're in Michigan. Now, and now, I, now I know. Absolutely. Know and so yep. right in the midst of all this, Jim too, I, again, great news in a, in a weird time, a Jim Ward solo album. And that, honestly hit me a little bit out of nowhere. Cause I figured you guys would have still been kind of in trust the river mode, but, um, got to check out paper fish and man, what a song I, I have to admit. I, when I heard about your solo record, I expected something kind of, you know, stripped down acoustic, like kind yeah. of that rustic sort of thing. And yeah, I tuned in and immediately was like, Whoa, Jim's rocking out on this new solo effort. And that is not the heaviest song on the record. Right? I mean, so the next single comes out, uh, next Friday or next Thursday. And it's, it is, uh, it's a banger. So I think part of, part of this was a surprise to me as well. Generally, this was a record that I made to make myself feel comfortable in a time when I didn't feel comfortable and it wasn't intended. It was just me writing songs, um, really quickly. Like I wrote the record in probably 13 or 14 days. Tucker did all the drum demos in like three days. It just happened really, really fast. When is it? What's the next single called? What, and when's it going to come out? It's called I Got a Secret and Shauna Potter from War on Women. I don't know if you're familiar with that band, but it's... Oh, nice. Um, she sings. It's basically a duet. Uh, it's like a call and response, but it's, it was the first song I wrote for the record. And it's just full-blown, big guitar, fast, craziness, screaming. For a lot of the fans that were a little like, Trust the River is not heavy enough. Or like, why are you in your 40s now? Like, I think maybe this will be a little bit of a, a, little bit of a slapback at that. How dare you turn 40, Jim? You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I always say like, I don't make records for anybody else. So I I'm fine with criticism. I'm not hurt by it necessarily. Or like, I don't want people to think a certain thing about the music that I make, but I do always find it funny when people tell me I'm wrong in what I do. Cause it's silly. Right. Yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. So, you know, before we get too far into it, how, how do you feel about looking back as artists? We're all people who like to look forward, right? I mean, and I, I, we always hesitate to ask an artist, especially one like yourself, who always moves forward, you know, about the process of looking back at a, an album that's almost two decades old. How do you feel about doing that sort of thing as an artist? I think there's just a lot of different you know, like anything, there's a huge spectrum of how you treat your past. Like some people bury it, some people change it, some people rewrite history, some people live in the past. You know, there's always the stories of like the high school quarterback who can't let it go. And I think sort of taking bits of all of that is pretty healthy. So we try and figure out, you know, I came from a band that was basically done by the time I was 24 that has left a huge impression or shadow sometimes, or sometimes it's a bright light. So at a young age, I started sort of figuring out how to deal with my past because one, every interview I do for the rest of my life will ask me about it. And I could either be a jerk or lie, or I could just sort of be honest and deal with it as I go. And what I found is after talking about it for 20 years, I'm pretty good with it. Like, so I'm pretty good looking at the past and saying like, you know, there was some great stuff that happened. I know we're talking about porcelain today. Like there's some great stuff that happened in my life around then. Um, there was also some awful things that happened and sort of all of that went into the record and I would be remiss to not acknowledge all of that, you know? And then also on top of that, that record sits in people's lives in that time period and whenever they sort of discovered it. And, and I respect that. And I don't try and tell people what to think about it. It's, it, it's your, it's yours. Once I make it and give it to the world, it's, it's up to you. You, you do what you want with it. Just don't tell me I'm wrong. That's all. <laughs> Yeah. One of the things, I mean, it's, you've had a a fascinating career, obviously from the get go. And, you know, one of the things that um, I think many are interested in, I certainly am is, you know, going all the way back to kind of the early El Paso days. I mean, first, first of all, there, you know, we're up in Michigan and most of us are, are pretty unfamiliar with just El Paso as a town, as a community, as a culture, um, particularly when it comes to arts and music and those type of things. You know, clearly you guys were going back a ways now with the kind of creation and execution of at the drive-in and what was the scene like at that time locally? And has it changed much? Um, obviously you guys had a pretty big impact on it. I would imagine. Did, did you guys kind of know at the time that you were doing something unique and special or were you just jamming and like, you know, doing what you do? Um, because it's a really interesting project in hindsight to look back at and one that pretty influential, very acclaimed, um, was, was your head spinning? Did you know you were a part of something that was different and unique or, you know, what, what, what was it like looking back? So I think there was, there's, there's sort of two elements to the beginning of the story. One is I was a senior in high school. I didn't want to go to college. The band that I was playing in, I was the front man. I was the singer guitar player for a band. Um, they, the, the bass player was older than me and and already in school and established and was paying rent and he didn't want to tour. And he just, I mean, I understand now at the time I couldn't understand. And it was, I didn't talk to him for a long time afterwards. I wanted to tour and I knew that Cedric was the best front man in our town and I wanted to make a band with him. So we started the band uh, and then we filled it out with some guys that we didn't really know. The drummer for my band eventually ended up being the drummer on the first seven inch. And then we had a lot of people come through that band. There's been like 150 members of that band. (laughs) Um, So it was, it was really the idea that I wanted to uh, explore the world. And I felt like 
because I was watching bands come through El Paso, I knew that that was a possibility that you could be a band from Washington, D.C. and be playing in El Paso. So why couldn't you be a band from El Paso and be playing in Washington, D.C.? Also, the Rhythm Pigs are from El Paso. So we sort of had a, a, a blueprint and an older brother in Ed Ivy who would kind of school us on this is how it works. So pretty much immediately it was like, write some songs, make a seven inch, do four t- Texas shows and then book a summer tour in 95. And that to me was like the nail in the coffin. Like I never wanted to do anything else. I was hooked. Never realized it would be important to anybody else. Didn't think that that was like, there was never a goal of being uh, rich or famous or anything. It was very much a, a, a DIY punk rock band. Um, but it had a lot of personalities and sort of every evolution of the band you know, kept, kept getting bigger and better and more complicated, which I think was a good thing up until the point that it, it kept us from being able to, to work anymore. It's obviously, and I don't know if you know the whole history, but I, I was actually kicked out of the band three weeks before the 2016 reunion. So I was at the first round of practicing, got kicked out, didn't, didn't do that tour, didn't make that record. Um, and was replaced by Keely who was in Sparta who replaced Paul, who went to, you know what I mean? Like we're a very complicated group of dudes. It is like, yeah. it is like a middle school TV show. You need one of those family trees like yes has, you know, oh, where it's like yeah, all it's, these different formations yeah. and everything. Yeah. It's, it's super complicated and it would be easy to be, uh, it would be easy to be upset and sort of put all of that stuff into a box and, and make it about one thing. Yeah. But this is what I'm talking about where you look back on your whole career and you say, you know, I left the band when they, before they made the EP El Gran Orgo, I left the band because my memory of it is if I don't quit, this band's going to break up because there was a guy who was going to join that didn't like me, who became, who was Tony, who then went to be the drummer in Sparta. And we did tons of records together. But at that moment in our lives, we couldn't connect. We couldn't be, we couldn't make music together. And I felt like if I don't leave, this band's just going to break up and they're just going to be the same band with a new drummer and a different name. And Again, this is my memory of it. So I don't know, you know, maybe their memory is different, but I felt like the right thing to do because I love the band was to leave. And I think what happened in 2016 is similar. Like, I love that band. I wouldn't, despite all of the people that encouraged me to take sort of legal action or whatever, or talk shit about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, no, man, that, I love that band. It doesn't, the stuff that's happening with me inside me and I'm going to process for a long time, that doesn't have anything to do with kids going to a show and seeing a band. So yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to tarnish that. I'm not going to talk shit about anybody. I'm not going to do interviews and fight back about whatever is said. Like it just doesn't, it's not important. What's important to me is that something that was a desire for me in 1994, which was, I want to create and escape this future that I'm supposed to go into. You know, I was like, I did well in school. I should have gone to college. I was in engineering camps and shit like that in high school. Mm-hmm. That's not the path I want to go on. I want to go on this path. And when I go on this path, I don't want at any point to look back at that and rewrite that history and say, you know, it wasn't really that important. What's more important is what I'm doing now. Like, that's not true. It's just not fucking true. So I just kind of leave it at that long answer to the question. But yeah, the thing about El Paso, I'll tell you this, is that in 1994, every band would play with every band because there weren't enough bands to have subgenres. So there wasn't like a ska scene and a punk scene and a metal scene. It was like, we just had a scene and everybody played shows together. And so you would, you would play a show and you would watch your friend who was in a super metal band play. And then your friend that was in a band that sounded like 10,000 maniacs. And then, then, you know what I mean? We all played together because 
Yeah. That was the only option. Yeah. And I'm assuming that that's happening all over the world because there's only a few cities where you could have 50 garage bands, you know? Totally. And, you know, you guys were pretty original. I mean, I do. I'm sure there were some bands around that were kind of producing that sort of sound. But I think all in all, you were presenting yourselves, you were performing and you were creating sort of a genre of content that was unfamiliar to many and very original. What kind of stuff were you into back then as you were, you know, kind of formulating this? What, what at the time was a pretty new, I think, approach, you know, who kind of influenced that either for you or for kind of the band as a whole? I mean, were there specific things that you were really diving into at the time? Well, I think there was a very uh, democratic writing process between Cedric and I who started writing together and, and wrote probably the bulk of stuff in the beginning. Um, and the process was, hey, I have this riff. Cool. I have one. We can put it together. You know, it wasn't. All of the songwriting for that band forever, no matter who did what, was split equally. All the money that was made forever was split equally. It was never anything other than a democratic rock and roll band. I was definitely biting Drive Like Jehu pretty fucking hard. I was definitely biting Nation of Ulysses pretty hard. But at the same time, I really love you too. So there's like, for me, there's this thing going on where I want the Edge's melody, but I want the ferocious guitar of, of, uh, you know, drive like Jehu. And then on top of that, I want the aesthetic of Nation of Ulysses. Like I like this whole invention of yourself. Like I wasn't a, a cool kid in school. Like I wanted to in- reinvent myself like every rock and roll kid. Sure. And all of that was, was rolled up in the ball of punk rock, which has very, very few rules, you know? Yeah. yeah. So it's not like, Oh, you can't be, you can't be that. It's more like you do whatever you want. Who cares? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And then we'll judge you. I'm not saying there's no judgment in punk rock. I'm just saying there's very few preconceived, like do what you want. And then, and then we'll make fun of you. But yeah, it's not like it's a feel good place all the time. You know? Yeah. And at the time where you guys, you know, back when you guys kind of went different directions, I mean, were there a lot of creative um, differences at the time? I mean, obviously we know where they went with uh, Mars Volta and, and we know where you went with Sparta and, Clearly, those are two pretty different things. Was that creating any um, sort of disagreement uh, creatively around that time? And and I'm curious, you know, when obviously we're going to talk about Porcelain, just a fantastic record. You know, you're kind of doing that, which was a it was a, certainly a different sounding rock record, but it's a rock record. Mm-hmm. And then you're seeing those guys <laughs> kind of doing some of the crazy stuff there. I mean, did you think it was cool? Were you like, what the hell are they doing? Or, or did it all kind of, was, did it make sense? Was it like, yeah, we clearly wanted to do some different things. And uh, there wasn't, to me, there wasn't really ever a, a creative time period after we finished relationship, which was done in March of 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, once the record was done, we essentially went on tour and just burned ourselves out. Um, there was no, I was home 21 days in the year 2000. Wow. And we, we basically broke up on March 18th of 2001. So we, we only existed for a year after that record was kind of done. And that record was written really quickly before we made it. So all of that stuff is a blur. And I don't... Making the record wasn't a challenge. There wasn't a lot of creative differences. Um, I think it honestly probably in hindsight had a lot more to do with outside factors, not necessarily creating music, but maybe 
who's in charge of what or, or the vision for the future. And a lot of probably preconceived notions of, well, I want to do this, but they don't want to. Mm, I don't remember that ever being an issue, but at the same time, this is my memory and and I'm pretty clueless a lot of the times when it comes to the (laughs) politics of what's going on in the band. Yeah. I pretty pretty much sit in the middle clear. Like I'm, I'm rarely like the, like I'm rarely like demanding anything, but at the same time, I'm not really creating, uh, I'm not causing situations either. Like low drama. It sounds like. Yeah. yeah, Low drama. (laughs) But also like, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's hard. It's not like you can really sum it up. I'm a, I'm a headstrong person. I'm definitely an alpha writer. So I think probably if I'm, if I'm writing a ton of stuff and someone isn't happy with it, they don't always tell me I'm not happy with it. Maybe they just want to do a new band and that's, that's fine. There's no, I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't want someone to be, I'm never going to be in a band where I'm not at least one of the primary writers because that's my job. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I'm not the world's greatest front man. I'm, I'm a great side man because I'm a pretty good front man, which makes me fit that role, you know, really well. But like, I like the Joe Strummer role of a band. Yeah. Um, yeah. those are kind of my heroes. Like all the guys that I look up to musically, like guys and gals would be, would be sort of the, I don't always love the rock star. I kind of love the rock star side man. A yeah. little bit. And yeah. with, with, of course, exceptions, but you know, that's kind of, I don't think that there'll ever be an easy way to explain any of that stuff. Um, looking back on it, I wouldn't change anything as crazy as my life has been. You know, I also have friends that have been in the same band since they were 19 and they're equally as happy and as unhappy as I am. So I don't know that there's one way or the other that's better. It's just the way that my life has turned out and, and what a fucking life I'm not complaining. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, and it's, I mean, it's good, you, you know, that you're kind of a low drama type of um, dynamic within a group. Cause I mean, Ced, Cedric and Omar don't seem drama at all, just not at all. So um. I think this is also, <laughs> this would be probably one of those things where it's, it's all in the eye of, of the beholder. <laughs> right, right. There's probably definitely people I've played with that are like, that dude is nonstop drama. Like, <laughs> you know, to some degree, self, preservation includes letting yourself off the hook more than other people would. Right. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not the sort of person that's going to say, uh, in fact, I, I tend to lean towards self-deprecation more than whatever, but at the end of the day, I try to be honest, as honest as I can be. And I also try to admit when I don't know or, or leave room for, for you to make that decision. Like, I don't know that I'm the easiest person to play with. In fact, I know I'm not the easiest person to play with. Um, but you know, it is what it is. And, well, that, that genuine nature really, really comes through in your work and in your art. And it, it certainly does, I think in, in tonight's album. So it's one of my favorite things about Sparta and about porcelain is just the authenticity. And we'll get to that for sure. We cannot wait to put this album on the turntable, but before we do that to you, let's find okay. out what Jim Ward has been listening to as we take the show round and round T let's do it. Oh, three albums that have been uh, suiting your musical fancy of late. What do you got? All right. Well, as usual, I got three pretty different things. The first, I'm finally, this is after months, digging into uh, the, the, I guess it's not a new record anymore, but it's the most recent from one of my favorite bands out of the UK called Everything, Everything. And this is, I, you know, I guess the, I've used this term that completely, you know, fabricated and made and invented called uh uh prog pop 
which I think is kind of what these guys are uh, very creative, you know, a lot of odd, odd time signature stuff, unique vocal. They're an awesome band. And, and, you know, I'm finally kind of starting to get into their record top to bottom, even though it took me a few months. So, um, I've been plowing through that one from one of my, say one of my favorite newer bands out there. The second is uh, a little Howard Jones, and this is his, uh, live acoustic, which for him, acoustic is himself and a piano. And, uh, there's some really good versions of some of his, uh, classic work, big fan. And the third, you know, listen, I, I've been wondering if, uh, if snow, you know, the guy who did informer, you know, yeah. I've been wondering if, if, if 12 inches of snow, which might be the best re- album title ever phenomenal is actually a good record. So I gave 12 inches of snow, a couple spins. It's not great. It's not great, <laughs> but kind of kind of amazing at the same time. So I, I got to give it up to my man Snow, 12 inches of. So that's uh, what's been round and round for me. How about you, Nub? Well, actually, let's kick it to uh, our special guest, Jim Ward. Jim, what have you been listening to three albums of late? So I'm going to go first off just with a single. The new Quicksand single, I think, is, is uh, great. And, and talking about a band that can um, appear, disappear, reappear, and be <laughs> equally as hard-hitting. Yeah. Um, so been enjoying inversion. Um, I've gone back to, uh, one of my favorite records ever, which is cancel everything by Ronnie Wood. Again, talking about my, my love of sidemen, um, cancel everything has a song called mystifies me on it, which, um, do yourself a favor and listen to that song. And just, it is so unbelievably good, unbelievably good that I will always kind of go back to it from time to time. And I think through this time period, I sort of have gone back to records that, that bring me comfort and, and joy, you know? Um, and then the last one I'd say is I just got my, my copy of assembly, the Joe Strummer retrospective LP. Um, so I've been just kind of like burning through some of that stuff. Like I fought the law live, uh, coma girl studio version, stuff like that. And just, and just re, uh, re falling in love again. <laughs> nice. That's good stuff, Jim. That that good call on the quicksand. I haven't heard it yet. See, I don't know if you've checked it out. We're very quicksand quicksand oh, friendly so here on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. So, so good. Looking forward to it. For me, I've got uh first and foremost in and Jim in the last week's podcast that we did, uh I I've recently rediscovered a band from the 90s. I wouldn't say rediscovered, discovered, but it's a band called Big Rack. And uh, they're sort of a prog band. Yeah. And um yeah, and I, I've been digging their second album, which is the pleasure and the greed. And it's cool to just completely discover a band that's from that era that literally I had no idea even existed and been really enjoying that. Second would be Mashuga, getting my metal on with uh, the first, their first album, Contradictions Collapse. Jim Ward, is Mashuga too metal for you or can you dig that sort of thing? I, there's nothing too metal for me. Nice. <laughs> yeah, nice. I, don't, I, don't put those, I don't put those barriers up, man. Love it. Love it. And third would be uh, Joni Mitchell's ladies of the King. And she's actually, uh, there's, there's a reissue package coming out of the first yeah. four albums. That's a little too metal for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah Joni Mitchell too metal for you too. Yeah. This is the, the 1970 album and I'm, I'm listening to it now because I'm definitely going to buy this reissue vinyl box set that's coming out, which includes this album in it. But uh, those first few Joni Mitchell albums were just insanely good. I hadn't, you know, they just, I don't know if they're, airing it on the radio because of box sets coming out or whatever, but they were playing, um, what's it called? Not big car. What's the song about the parking lot? Big yellow taxi, big yellow taxi. It's just the parking lot song, right? Yeah. 
but I, I never really realized the end of that when she's like sort of goofing on the vocal where she's doing like the real high and the real low and then kind of laughs at herself. Like I kind of, I think always thought that was live, but that's actually the recorded version is pretty amazing. Like I love the last five seconds of that song. It's unreal. Totally. And, and based on, I don't know if you watched that Echoes of the King in documentary, but uh, I'm yeah. imagining there were some substances involved <laughs> in, the, in that particular session because you're nah. right, man. It's like, how is she doing this? No, nah, not never. at all. Never, never, never. never. <laughs> well, uh, Porcelain uh, from 2004 is the album of focus on episode 46. And we talked a lot already about kind of the deep background of the record, but. Um, Jim, let's get into some of the uh, just kind of background information about it before we drop yeah. the needle. So let's take Porcelain into what we call the Nerdy Deets, Done Dirt Cheap. You want some Dirty Deets? Yeah! You want some Dirty Deets? Porcelain was released July 13th of 2004. Jim, the album's about to turn 17. How crazy yeah. is that? I know. It's one, one year from legal. What's significant? <laughs> <laughs> What's, what's very significant about this album is it came out on Geffen Records and not just a major label, but you know, one of the major labels and a label that's so synonymous with taking chances and, and uh, doing things just a little bit against the grain. And we'll talk a little bit about just the role of the major label in this album. I think that does play into the sound. The album was produced by Mike Major. It is an exceptionally sounding album when you just look at the production. It, 2004 was a, a very unique era in music. This is that sort of switch from people sort of buying and holding music to, you know, downloading and, and listening to things more on portable devices. But this album feels like it was produced, mixed and mastered for radio, which is a lost art now because, you know, radio is a totally different medium than it was yeah. then. But, but it definitely is that major label polish. Uh, Jim, tell me a little bit about just Mike Major's impact on it and just this idea of being on one of the giants of all major record labels. So two funny things about that. Mike Major is the first person I ever went to a studio with when we recorded the first seven inch for at the drive-in. So he was an engineer in El Paso at kind of our one real studio that we could afford at least. So all of my studio etiquette came from working with Mike, um, who's probably 10 years older than me, something like that. So I was 17 in the studio and he's telling me, you don't do that in a studio. You do this. You don't do that. You do this. You treat it with respect. So we've always been complimented on our studio etiquette because of Mike. Like we, we treat all of this stuff with respect and being able to have him come back and make a major label record for us with us, not for us, uh, was huge. He brought his family out. We lived in LA together. All of us that were from El Paso lived in LA at the same time, lived at, at a, you know, corporate apartments or whatever, but it just had a different sort of get out of town, do what you do to the 10th degree. Like it was just, it was taken so seriously. We brought an engineer from El Paso. We brought our producer from El Paso. Like we went to sunset sound and made a record in a, in a holy place to us. Um, we wrote that record in Joshua tree at Rancho de la Luna, which is sort of the Queens compound with Josh's blessing. All of those things kind of were really important. I had lost a couple of, of really critical people in my life right before we started writing that record, right at the end of Wiretap. The other thing to remember is that going into writing this record, we had been essentially on tour for six years, something like that. So it was the last, basically the last two at the driving records and Wiretap. All of that stuff had been in, in sequence. There was no breaks. There was no vacations. Um, so we're still trying to learning how to be grownups and 
writing this record and going into your sophomore record, which is a really hard place to go anyway. And then you were, you were a really young band. A lot of people don't realize that because they associate the, the driving thing, but right. you know, wiretap came out pretty quickly and you were able to release, were you on dreamworks for wiretap? Yeah. We were actually on dreamworks halfway through porcelain too. Okay. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Dreamworks got bought by Geffen while we were at sunset sound. And, and basically somebody called and said, DreamWorks is dissolving into Geffen. They're keeping half the roster. We'll let you know tomorrow where you're at. Something to that effect. And it was, it was probably less concerning than it should have been for me in particular. Like I was just like, whatever. I mean, I don't, what are you going to do? We're making a record and I'd rather just kind of go out and have fun tonight than worry about this stuff. And, but we ended up getting, we got kept, um, but we were always sort of the bastard child. Um, and I don't think we ever got a, a real fair shot. I don't think porcelain ever got its fair shot at the world because a whole staff inherited a half finished record. And it just, even though our, our, our guy went to Geffen, it just, I don't know that we ever had the full support of the label. And plus Jim, the labels were panicking because th- this yeah. was literally the beginning of them bleeding money because they weren't selling like they were and this threat of digital and everything. I mean, they, yeah. And we and, weren't, we weren't a big seller to begin with. Like wiretap sold a lot of records, but you know, the other people on Geffen at that time were like 50 cent who was selling right. a lot of records, you know? So I think it's just the time period and I've never taken it personally. And I got some pretty good friends out of, out of that deal that worked at that label. And, um, but yeah, that's kind of the setup. The album peaked at uh, number 60 on the Billboard 200. So charted well, the, the first, and I believe only single was breaking the broken, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, did, did fairly well and got some play on rock radio and things like that. I know the video is still something I check out every once in a while. Cause I, I love that accompanying video that went with it. The personnel as we sort of reference is of course, tonight's guest, Jim Ward on guitars and vocals, Jim, I, I'm assuming you did some of the keyboard work. I know in like Lacera, I can hear some of those deep keyboards. Were you, did you play those or was that Mike major or? or? Yeah, no, I do, I do all the pianos. That's what I thought. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then, you know what? I've, I've always, I think butchered his name. Is it Paul Hinos? Is that how you pronounce it? It's uh, Enojos. Enojos. Okay, cool. So Paul, Paul Enojos, which is obviously one of the carryover members from at the drive-in on guitar. We'll talk a lot about the two of you and your dual guitar attack. Cause it's, it's a pretty special part of porcelain. Matt Miller, who's still in Sparta, which is great on yeah. bass. And then one of the secret weapons of the band during this phase, in my opinion, which is Tony Hajar. Yes. I'm a drummer. So I'm a little partial, but yeah, I think the guy just slams. And I think he brought something to Sparta that was, uh, that gave you guys such a big sound. Yeah. You also have to remember that Mike major is a, is a drummer. That is, that is always like a cornerstone. It should be a cornerstone for any record, but a lot of that pre-production and I think Tony and Mike still have a really great relationship. And I think that that's, you know, one thing that benefited from their relationship was like, I mean, there's a fucking drum solo on the record. Like, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) I think that says it all. (laughs) Where did you guys find Matt? I mean, is it, is it, is it? Okay, Okay, cool. So he, he's part of this whole scene. And is it, is it too simple to think that the, the break, I know Tove mentioned this earlier, but, the break off with you, Tony and Paul, were you guys just on the same page from the beginning and, and knew that you wanted a certain sound? Was it a natural break to have you three be in the band together or did, was there still an adjustment period when Sparta started or were you guys pretty well set on playing with I, each other? And it's hard to imagine now. Cause it happened what in hindsight, it looks like it happened so quickly, but when, when we stopped, it wasn't unusual for us to play in other bands. I played in several bands during at the drive, we all had other bands. So it wasn't like, uh, 
it wasn't weird to immediately go off. I went immediately to Austin and started playing with the guys that were in a band called Rhythm of Black Lines. And there's, and I can't find it, but there's a recording of air that I did with them before Sparta ever started. I came home from that sort of hangout session, et cetera. And they sort of just pulled me into a, you know, basically a meeting or a bar or whatever it was. And just said like, look, I'll remember the way I remember it is they were like, we've been watching tapes of old shows and your singing is strong. Why don't you be a singer in a band? And I think it, you know, to some degree, this is where you get into like revisionism. I can't tell you why I chose to do that instead of playing with the guys in Austin. But looking back to me, it seemed like my friends needed me. And I'm not, I'm not putting the, like, not that I saved anybody or not. Don't take that in, in the wrong way. I just think at the time they were like, Hey, we, we could do this together. And it felt like, okay, like this is where I need to be. And also that was my first real record singing. I mean, I sang in high school in a high school band, right. But never at this level, like I signed to DreamWorks as an unproven singer, like for a stupid amount of money at the time, you know, like, I don't know why they did that. And, <laughs> and I took that pressure really seriously, really seriously. And in fact, when we made wiretap scars, I told Jerry Finn that I wouldn't use auto tune. And he said, that's fine, but I'm going to work you to the bone. And I worked on vocals for like two months, like a ridiculous amount of time and a ridiculous amount of money was spent on me learning how to sing in the studio. So like what you hear on wiretap scars is not, there's no computer correction at all. That is me working my fucking ass off. Mm -hmm. And, and to me, that's what it took at the time. So I think going into porcelain, I sort of had all of those, we toured for 18, 18, 19 months on wiretap. So going into porcelain, you know, things were disheveled to say the least. We had lost my cousin who was an integral part of sort of all of our crews um, and something that kind of kept our camps tied together a little bit. And my grandfather died, sort of my grandfather died while we were on tour. And then our good friend Ray passed away from cancer. And then my cousin died all within like seven weeks of each other. So going into right porcelain, I was, I was not in good shape like is, is the easiest way to say it. And then you, have, of course, you, you know, you make the record have to go on tour. And I mean, that couldn't have been easy. And in fact, I, you guys sort of, you know, halted the tour um, at some point during it while you were on porcelain. Yeah, I left. I left because yeah. here's another thing. Uh, and, and I'm kind of, you know, whether it's a good part of the story or not for porcelain is that was the end of my rope. So that was, I got, I went as far as I could go and we played at the chameleon club in Lancaster. Um, and I woke up the next morning and basically was, you know, we didn't talk about mental health. We didn't talk about the health of the band at that point. It was just like, I was sent to throat specialists because I was spitting up blood, but no one ever said, Hey, Hey man, you're, you're not doing so good. Like hmm. mentally. Yeah. And it was kind of up and it's nobody else's job. I get that part. I mean, there's a lot of people that made a lot of fucking money off us that didn't say, uh, you, you seem a little bit fucked up, but again, that's, that's what it is. I woke up and knew immediately that I either needed to kill myself or leave the tour. And that's a fucked up thing to say, but that's how far I got. And I looked in my phone all morning, like I woke up at like four in the morning and I looked in my phone all morning to see who I could call in my phone that would make me feel better enough to finish the tour. We were pretty as far away from LA as you can get. All those guys live in LA. I fucked up everybody's life, everybody's money, all the opening bands, all of the crew. Um, 
because I got up and I went to my tour manager's room and I said, you need to put me on a plane like right fucking now. And I need to go home. And I turned off my phone and I didn't talk to anybody for weeks, weeks and weeks and weeks. And I just sat at home and, and started uh, trying to figure out who I was and what had happened. And it's, it's crazy. The, only, the thing that started all of that is that somebody walked up to me at the bar at the club and said, your music saved my life. And, I, and it's not like I've never heard that before. That's a common thing to tell people in bands. But that day, I couldn't get it out of my head. While we were playing, I remember thinking, singing on autopilot, playing on autopilot, and thinking to myself, who is doing that for me? Because I fucking need that right now. Like, I need somebody to help me. Yeah. yeah. But we never talked about it. Yeah. Nobody ever talked about it. It, yeah. was never, it was never like, you don't sit in the dressing room and say like, hey, man, you seem a little down. It's just like, why are you bummed out? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So snap but, out of it. Toughen up. Yeah. yeah. Get it yeah. together, man. You're so lucky. You know how many people would kill to be doing this? Like, it's just, that's the stuff that, and then you start watching your heroes do it to themselves and you, it starts to make sense, you know, but. Yeah. It, well, it's funny, you, you know, you use the term autopilot. I mean, I think, and, and Nub said it well on an episode a couple of weeks ago, you know, th- there's a lot of illusion you know, when it comes to rock and roll, as far as people go to the show and, and they think it's your only show, you know, and it's just for them. And they don't realize the process of getting back on the tour bus, going to another hotel, maybe the shitty one in Ann Arbor, perhaps. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's having never been a touring musician. I can only imagine the way that sometimes it can be frustrating to the point where everybody thinks that you're you know, just doing it for them that night and doesn't realize the taxation physically and mentally of kind of doing that. And listen, it's a job. We all have to, you know, we have day jobs. We do sort of the corporate thing day to day. And there are days and there are weeks and there are months in some cases where it's just like, oh, like I can't do it. I don't want to do it, you know? And people forget that for you guys, you know, I'm sure you love, uh, you know, uh, and have fun memories of, uh, while Oceana sleeps, but you know, when you play it 200 times, you're working. Yeah, for sure. You know, you're working. And that doesn't mean that doesn't take anything away from the creativity of it or the process of it, or, or I'm sure there's an element of you get joy from the joy it, it, that it brings others, but it's still work. And when those yeah. things, you know, become a grind and become work, it's, it's not as easy as saying, man, you're, you're a touring rock star. Like, you know, quit bitching. Yeah. Nobody loves a bellyache and rock star. Like Ben. <laughs> well, you one of my favorite lines. Yeah. You know? It's true. And it's, it's hard work sometimes and it's super rewarding, but I've always said this. I've said this from, from when at the drive and stop the first time and everyone said, how can you pull the plug on something that's about to be this big? And my answer is always, there's not enough money in the world to do this. If you're unhappy, yep. there's just not, it just doesn't matter. It's so taxing. To do it takes so much love to do it that there's no way anything else could replace that. Like that's how much I love to play music is that I do this. And that's the only, that's the only way I could ever say it. So yeah, it's, it's hard, but it's, it's unbelievably rewarding. I've had an unbelievable fucking life and I'm so grateful for everybody who has allowed me to have this life, but I also wouldn't, I don't want to ruin it and make it cheap for you either. Like, yeah, it's no good. Well, that's one of the, you know, I do want to mention, um, you know, before we dig in to the record that my, my uh, first 
you know, Sparta show was on this tour. It was Nubs. Was it Clutch Cargos or St. Andrews? Clutch Cargos. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought in Pontiac, which, yeah, is, yeah. No, which oh. no longer exists. And Pontiac's a ghost town, which kind of is sad. That but sucks. yeah, but um, the thing I remember, and I've always said this about, about your band and about you, I, you know, we've been to a lot of shows. You can tell we're kind of geeks about this whole thing. And the Sparta show was really special for me. And I didn't know a lot about the band. Nubs was really into it. And he kind of said, you got to come see these guys. And I was like, yeah, and I'm sure glad I did, obviously. But the thing I remember is it was as like efficient of a crowd as I've ever seen. It wasn't a huge, massive crowd. The place was about three fourths full, but every single person there knew the material, knew the lyrics. They were connecting. I remember this girl was standing like two people away from us and I've never seen, you know, I've seen a lot of people mouth along with lyrics and air drum and I've never seen somebody be so connected yeah. what was going on as this girl i always remember her. it's like this weird citizen kane thing where it's like the women i always re- kind of remember her when i think of rock and roll shows but it was a special thing and and you know to your point about people coming up to you and saying you know how much your music meant to them and all those and, and i'm sure at some point that you know you start to hear that a few times and i'm sure it never gets old but it certainly gets routine but i i've been to very few shows i could think of very few that were as where you're standing in the midst of something where people, you know, feel so connected and, and where, you know, not just a heavy majority of the crowd, but all of the crowd seemed to be in that place. And, and that was, that, that's what I'll always remember about that clutch cargo show, which was my, you know, first experience in, in kind of seeing you guys live. Well, I'll, I'll always go for the, the quality over the quantity always. I mean, for, for anything. And I think that we as a band, Every band I've ever been in, everything I've ever done musically, like I've always left it on the floor. Always. Like there's very few times I can remember phoning it in at any point. Yeah. At any point. And and I mean like maybe the last, maybe the encore song at a festival, I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm drunk. <laughs> I'm fucking done. Nobody wants to see this. Like, you know, but those are very rare. I mean, I'm talking like a few times I can literally remember. Most of the time it's just like all out all the time yeah. as much as you can go. So I appreciate that, that it made that connection. That means a lot to hear. Thank you. Yeah. I'm going to share my favorite memory from that show. When we get to the opening track of this album, because that plays a role in it. But the last nerdy deed I want to ask about Jim, allow me to gush just a little bit about the sleeve and the imagery of porcelain. There is something about this cover that connected with me and I was reviewing music at the time. So I, I, I got my little promo version of sparta and just to prove i'm og jim i got the vinyl too nice this is pretty rare too but the the, um the all white the use of my bird uh knowledge is not what it should be is that a is it a swan it's a swan swan okay there's the simplicity of it there's something beautiful about it the album name to me is just something very pure and very simple Mm -hmm. and direct i just love the whole package of it can you talk a little bit about that what was the vision there it was all about being unassuming, not making anything crazy or over the top or overstimulating. It was about having like a palate cleanser, right? So it's a pretty honest record. And I just wanted an honest visual element to it. It was clean without, without being the white album, which is what, you know, somebody got to us before that. 
Well, you could have also gone, I mean, if you wanted to, you could have gone Spinal Tap, you know, a Black Swan, you know, Black Album. I mean, or just shit sandwich. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a two word review. Yeah. Just just a, two word review. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Excellent. Well, those are the nerdy deets and, and it's time to drop that needle. And uh, I'm looking forward to the way porcelain opens. So let's drop the needle on track one as we get into 2004's porcelain tea. Let's do this. If you looked up in the dictionary what a good rock album opener should sound like, you might find the opening track, Guns of Memorial Park. It's a jam. I uh, I said I'd talk about my favorite memory of the Clutch Cargo Show, and here's what it is. I, I saw you guys on the first leg of Porcelain when you were opening for Incubus. Mm-hmm. It was at the Palace of Auburn Hills, big basketball arena. It's where the Detroit Pistons used to play. First arena I ever played. Is that right? Yeah, with Rage. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. Nice. And it was really cool because I was super into the band and hadn't seen you guys yet. So it, it was cool. And if you remember during that leg, you were opening with my... Um, why Which would we do that? <laughs> I was just about to say, interesting opener. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> you know, but, but I'll tell you what, it, it, it brought on analysis because I was like, well, this is an interesting choice because I was a fan of Wiretap and I, yeah. I thought for sure maybe cut your ribbon or, you know, something. But it, there was something interesting, though, about that as an as Yeah, a I, don't, I don't take any credit for that. Tony did set lists forever. Oh, really? So, yeah, I, don't, I never did it. Well, I, I desperately wanted you guys to open with Guns of Memorial Park. And when you announced your headlining tour, Clutch Cargos, I was like, please just let them come out and just kick some serious ass with that as an opener. And you did. And oh, it, good. and it, um, it just well, got the show off. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it got the show off. To, it was a blistering version of it. It was just fantastic. And um, so that's, that's one thing I remember is going from that kind of mid-tempo, interesting choice of my to. Yeah, yeah. To Guns Memorial Park, but talk about this as as the kickoff, and it sh- sure grabs the attention right off the bat. So I always think it's it's. Uh, I used to like to tell people, sort of, I like to live in the world between Fugazi and Radiohead, and I think that this is a good example of where where those spaces meet. Sort of the atmospheric background, um, the the sort of probably too long middle section, you know, lots of layered guitars, um, but that real. F- Fierce in your face vocal. And that song is that song was a, you know, without without the the full homage that I would later write for Jeremy. Um, that was my song to him in a way, because we used to play, they used to have these big World War One guns in Memorial Park, which is where I grew up in El Paso. Mm. And they had these old with the the sort of metal bucket seat. And we used to go and play on those when we were little boys. And so it was just my way of it was my, uh, my Easter egg to him, you know, having just lost him. That's cool. Cool tribute. Track two doesn't waste any time. It just goes. No wasting time. <laughs> it just goes right I love it. <laughs> and that is Hiss the Villain. Oh, 
Jim, if I had to describe porcelain to somebody without using any words, it'd be something like do 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 because there's the dual yeah. guitar thing, and I don't know who's doing what all the time. I don't either. <laughs> How did you guys come up with some of these interlocking things? And, and is that Paul doing a lot of that? Yeah, I, yeah. I'm not a lead player at all, so it, it, it's really rare that you'll hear me play more than, and if it's. If it sounds like a lead, but it repeats 50 times, that's me. Cause I like, it's just a riff, a one note riff, but I don't, I'm just not a lead guy at all. Like I have four pedals on my board. Even when I toured with a huge pedal board, cause I thought it made me look cool. I only use four of them most of the time. So all the little intricate stuff I think is, and this would almost always be the case for Sparta. Like I would write something we would sort of jam it out as a band or, or somebody would write a riff and we would jam it out into the parts. And then I would sort of lay down the rhythms and then I kind of step back and, and just let all the parts get filled in that, that, that other guitar player. I mean, we've had multiple guitar players, so it's, it's sort of whatever parts they want to put in. It's a great jam. I, I think, uh, did you have any, I mean, obviously Nub mentioned earlier that breaking the broken kind of ended up being the single. Did, did you have any singles in mind, uh, when you were writing this or were you just kind of going, uh, let's do it jams? Yeah, no, I think a lot of it was just being at the ranch, um, sort of enjoying being off the road and not, it was a kind of the first time we were all away from our families in one, like a destination writing situation and people would come and go. I mean, my wife came out for a while and left, but it's not, if you've ever seen pictures of that place, it's not a real comfortable situation. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of like model rockets being shot off and a, a lot of uh, booze being drank and just sort of other things being consumed and, and making music all day. We just recorded and lived in one space. So I think a lot of it was just get up, play guitars really loud, eat some lunch, play guitars really loud, you know, whatever. Shoot, off, shoot off rockets. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, we ordered some rocket engines off the internet and we're just <laughs> insanity. What could go wrong? Seriously. I mean, <laughs> it's the middle of the desert. What's <laughs> well, about track three. I, when I first heard the album, I thought Ooh, this, this kind of screams single and it, it never was, but it, it seemed to have that potential different vibe than breaking the broken. But uh, one of my favorites on the album, which is while Oceana sleeps. Strong baseline from Matt, for sure. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, you know, it's funny because of the harmonic loop and the, the fact that I'm in a weird tuning, which was what makes that song. So I, I call it kitty tuning. I don't know what it's really called, but it's it's a weird tuning. It's an open, open tuning that kind of always gets the attention. And I was just realizing when you played that, like, it's all about the bass. So when I, I tried to play it for a acoustic stream the other day and I called Matt and was like, I can't. <laughs> I, I can't play this song doesn't I, exist. I need you, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So well, it's, it should have been a single for sure, but you know, labels usually go for the, the, the punch in the gut instead of the deeper one, you know, unfortunately. Definitely the most memorable for me. I, you know, I think uh, it's a great track three, you know, I think it's, that, it's also the song that people are super attached to from that record. That's the one that yeah. I get number one, most requested song from porcelain easily. Is it? Yeah. yeah. How, um, you know, you said that you weren't as involved with, uh, set lists. How involved were you in the sequencing of the, the sort of track order on this? Cause I think it's really well put together. There's a lot of tracks. I mean, 14 tracks. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I'm not very involved at all. So I kind of, you know, Tony loves to go to 
mixing and mastering and sequencing. And, and that's, um, I get, I get, a, I already get a lot of attention on this stuff. Like I'm a primary songwriter and I'm the singer and I do most of the interviews and I don't need, I don't need to do all of it, you know? So I, I feel like when someone says, Hey, I really want to do this, then you should sort of step back and let them, let them do it. So honestly, like I, I wouldn't take any credit at all for any of that mixing, mastering, sequencing, none of it. Gotcha. Jim and Trek for you can confirm, deny, or no comment, but I think it's about your hometown. That's just my guess. And that is Les Circa. 100%. Previously mentioned too, I, I I hear those synthesizer notes. It's a layer, but it's in there, and uh, yeah. I like I like the thickness that that gives. But so so indeed, this is the El Paso tribute. Yeah, the circle means fence. So it's just talking about the fence between our. our so our city is broken up with a national uh, international border, but really El Paso and Juarez are so interconnected, both by families and commerce and and the air we breathe and the air we pollute and the water that we share, the river that we share. Um, so yeah, it's just a reference to, to the hometown. And then I always start like in a nonfiction setting. A lot of times I'll, I'll pick something that's, even if it's a love song, I'll take something that's happened in, in my life with, with Christine and, and then I'll sort of build from that. Um, but it's not always, uh, truth, truthful or accurate. It's kind of like, I, I let, I have that poetic license and I use it heavily. So have you ever jammed with Beto O'Rourke? Uh, no, I've never played music with him though. No. Okay. But he's, he's a good friend of mine. Is he? Okay. I know that, I know that he, uh, he plays, right? I mean, he does. Yeah. 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 So I was wondering if he was any good, but you know, well, he was in a band called Foss that I absolutely loved. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. He was in a band called Foss. Actually, Cedric was the drummer in Foss. Oh, really? They came off their US, like their summer tour that you do when you're 17 or 18. And I grabbed Cedric right after that tour. That's the beginning of At the Driving was the end of the bands that he was in at that time. It's kind of funny, honestly, like for those of us that don't know him, just know of his yeah. polit- political stylings. It's yeah, yeah. kind of hilarious to think of him like in a band with like Cedric drumming and, you know, oh, and they were, <laughs> they were so good, man. They were really? so, like from that DC vibe, like the discord vibe, like, and the sort of ringleader of all that is this guy named Arlo Clark, who's my, like my hero and my, my older brother in the scene and my mentor that kind of, he's like our Ian McKay. Yeah. So it, was, it was a good crew. It was a good crew to grow up in. I'm the very, I'm sort of the youngest end of it. I'm like the tail end of that whole gang. Right. Uh, we cool. all sort of went to the same high school and they were seniors when I was a freshman, you know, that's my connection to them. Yeah. That's really interesting. I'm not a singer, Jim, cause I'm a drummer and drummers should never sing, but eh, debatable. This, <laughs> except unless you're Phil Collins. There you go. Um, also Will Champion. I don't know if you're Phil And Will Champion. That's a great call. Levon yeah. Helm. He was pretty good. Yeah. There you go. Exactly. You so go. you guys are proving me wrong. I like. Don't it. sell yourself short, buddy. Yeah, exactly. If I if I were a uh, a front man though, this is a this is the type of chorus I would love to sing live, and m- maybe it would tear the shit out of my throat. So afterwards, I'd be like, ah. But th- there, this has to be. This has to feel good to sing. I, I know it's not an uplifting lyric, but the melody of it and the aggression of it is very real. It's it's. I think it's just something that um, it must be a little cathartic to sing. Track five was the single breaking the broken. I want to get your take on whether you, you know, was this a single that you liked or did you get sick of it after a while? And or where does this fit in 2021? But let's do the clip of it first breaking the broken. 
I love this song, but I but I know that lead singles can be something that you get burnt out on and things like that over time. What's your no, relationship? I, just, I, I love this song. I'll still okay. play it. I still play it all the time. Yeah, it's like one of my go-to because it can go slower and acoustic really well. But that's a good that's a good example of a of a Paul riff that the whole song is built around that whole beginning riff. That's a Paul riff and and uh, what a catchy thing! What a catchy riff! It's a great song, man. Really, yeah. really strong. All right, and uh, track six, slow things down a little bit, but uh, Lines in Sand. Maestro, good job on the clip. That, to me, is the magic of the song when it just bursts like that. So that was our first time ever having string players in the studio. and what a crazy experience to hear your music played by what I consider real musicians. <laughs> like it's so unreal. Uh, it was like, yeah, we were just all sitting on the floor of the studio a bit, like probably crying. Cause it was like, how can something we made sound this fucking beautiful? And it's, it's unreal, but yeah, all of that's based around uh, a Matt Miller baseline that is, you know, brilliant, brilliant song. Well, I'll tell you, part of the reason they can make it sound beautiful is because they had a pretty beautiful thing to work with you know, yeah, it's just, you know, it's, in the first place. Well, yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate it. And then N. Moraine actually closes off the second side of the first vinyl for looking at the sequencing there. So this uh, picks up the tempo back up a little bit. Pretty simple. Here, Jim, just this sounds like more of kind of guys in the garage sort of vibe on this particular song. So that I remember very well, Paul sort of making that song and, and Paul and Tony working on it and sort of building this song and then looking at me to sing on it. And I was like, what the fuck do you sing on this? Like, I have no idea. And it was the I feel like that song is the hardest I've ever worked on putting down a vocal to a song. Like to me, it was so complicated to find the cadence in it, you know, and the, to make it, make, make it mine to sing my style on it or whatever. Like, I love how it turned out, but that's a good example of like just putting in the work. Like that was, that was a grind for sure. Coming up with, uh, where would you rank as a composer coming up with the right vocal line, you know, and where it all clicks and you're like, okay, yeah. we got it. That's, that's, a, I mean, I do, I dabble in a little songwriting. I mean, that's, a, I think that's a huge challenge, you know, is that, where would you rank that as far as the challenge of composition? Um, if it was a car analogy, I would say it's the wheels. Like it ain't yeah. going to go anywhere if you don't finish a good vocal, like that's it. You know yeah. what I mean? A car, a car can roll down the hill without an engine, but it's not going anywhere without wheels. Indeed. Speaking of car, it's funny you say that because to me, the driving song on the album is Death in the Family, this slow beginning, and then it just takes yeah. off. I love this song. Death in the Family track eight. All based around that opening riff, Jim, or how did this one develop? Yeah, these different yeah all based around that. So it's a F sharp, I mean, a C sharp tuning. So it's, I started dabbling with sort of different tunings, which is while Oceana sleeps and then different uh, string gauges, just trying to find not, not repeat the same song. Um, so yeah, that's all, that's all like a, a C sharp guitar and always thought that that song did not get the 
attention that it deserved. Like always thought that was such a fucking good song. And I agree. Always proud of that one, but it just didn't, you know, for whatever reason, it wasn't, it didn't catch on with everybody, I guess. I don't know. It's like a lot of the album. It it didn't fit in a box. And, but that's what we love about it. You know what I mean? It might not, it might be the reason why it didn't explode, but it is why we still love this record. You know, Well, hopefully that will give it longevity and not, you know, like I said, I'm into the quality over the quantity. Absolutely. So syncope is sort of a instrumental we'll kind of, even though I really do dig it and I love the way it sets up tensioning, but into what I think is just one of the more emotional aspects of the album. And, and certainly one of the, one of my favorites and that is tensioning. Just so sonically rich. And, and when that, back and forth vocal thing comes in at the end. I just, I I love the way it all builds. It's funny that I never thought about it until right this second, but I am literally asking for help in that song right there. And it is, I had never thought about it. I seriously, but after telling you the story, what happened by the end of this tour, that is 100% me writing down to somebody like, will you please help me? Wow. I am fucking falling apart. Yeah. Wow. That's, fucked up to think about now <laughs> it's I'm a powerful I, song i have a therapist now so that will <laughs> be easy to get through <laughs> well i'll certainly di- listen to it a bit differently from now on but it's a hell of a song oh, yeah really, that's really, heavy. yeah i really like the way it uh kind of brings you down the home stretch here hell of a song it's funny too and that and, and thinking back i used i got in you know you get into these things you do when you play live and on the chorus there's a there's a part there's like a punch. And I started doing this thing where I would hit myself in the side of the head. And as the tour went on, I started doing it harder and harder and then started, you know, like not, not really re- like, it's just part of the show, I think. And it's like, that's the, the punch of the song or whatever. But I started kind of hurting myself <laughs> in the process and having to, to sort of back off. But I think that it is just like a really guttural uh, emotional song for me. Yeah, it is. It Weird. is for sure. It was for us as listeners as well. It's, a, it's an amazing track. Travel by Bloodline comes next. Jim, a song that takes full advantage of the kaka kaka. Yeah. It's just every time I hear it, it's just like, oh, did they really embrace the kaka (laughs) kaka? Yeah, it's it's such a fun thing to do live too. And and that, that was a, that was a song from my grandfather and I loved playing it because he was, when, when he died, we had just left for the, what, what was like the glass jaw tour that we did it, on wiretap, which is a huge, like one of the biggest tours I've ever done in a co-headlining situation. And, uh, the first, well, the second show was in El Paso. It's the only time my grandfather ever was on my bus and he, he came on the bus and he, he, he was about to have surgery because they had found some tumors in his head. And he got on the bus and he said, man, this is just like being in the Navy. And I just thought like, how cool is that? You know, that's awesome. Yeah, such a good memory. Yeah. Good. Dude. That is, that is. And, and, and I do remember you playing this one live. You seem to like this one. Yeah. Know? Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a burner. Absolutely. It sure is. So POME is the before mentioned uh, drum solo by Tony and or POME. I'm sorry. And is, is that Paris of the Middle East? Is this? It is. Is this? Yeah, okay, it is. Cool. yeah. So he was born in Beirut. Nice. Ah, Which they call the Paris of the Middle East. So it seemed appropriate to, to yeah. That's nice. Cool. I like that. So we'll skip that in terms of the clip, but it, the, the kind of epic and, and 
I want to know how come this didn't close the album just because of the way it, it moves and shakes and ends. But let's uh, it's a second to last track. And that is from now to never. I love this song. I'm the prog guy in the podcast, so I just love the twists and turns. Was there a thought to conclude the album like this in that sort of dramatic way? Uh, I don't think there was any preconceived notion to, to where that song would, would end up, but I definitely know I wanted to make uh, something epic. You know, just trying to get, you know, it's intentional that the lyrics are repeated in French by a woman. Like all that stuff is meant to be cinematic and emotional and. You know, some people really boring, but for me, I like, I live in that, in that sort of, in the pendulum swing, which is why I said, like, you don't get to tell me what I do is wrong. You can not like it. But for me at the time, I wanted to make just a fucking long, slow burning, you know, I remember showing that song to Josh Homme, um, in the middle of making the record and he goes, Oh, you really play piano. And I was like, <laughs> it was like the best compliment. Cause I don't think he liked the song, but he, he was like, Oh man. Oh, you really play piano. <laughs> That's cool. That's the best. <laughs> and the conclusion of porcelain, just kind of a jammer to end it. And that is splinters. Yeah, you chose the right clip again, Maestro. I, I love that. The, the balance is broken line. That, that's full on Jim Ward. Also, just the, the screen, like, yeah, don't ever let them know you can scream because then it gets, it's like, it's like being the designated hitter. It's just like, <laughs> we need something big right here. Okay, scream. All right. <laughs> you can't really, you know, which is why I think at some point you make a record like Quiet, which was just all acoustic and so soft. Cause I had been screaming for so long, you know? Yeah. That's a, again, a good example of a, of a Polynohos riff, just, just sh- a shredder man. the guy's a shredder. So. Sure is. Jim, we cannot thank you enough for your time. And we know you have a lot of obligations and we're just so thrilled and, and uh, honored that you would spend some time with us. Any final reflections on porcelain as an album that you can share with us? It's actually been really nice to go back and listen to this stuff. Like some of this, if it's not on my current set list, I don't go back and revisit it as much as, as probably I should. And thank you for giving me that opportunity. It really actually has been super enjoyable and, and I appreciate, I love this format. You guys are doing something cool and I will definitely check out other, other, other episodes for sure. Thanks so much for having me. That'd be incredible. And we, we always end the show with like, we do a rating system of the album where we do on the turntable uh, in the collection, collecting dust or, for sale bin T porcelain's going on the turntable. Oh yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, let's just, let's just, we both know that. So well, thank you, Jim Ward, thank you so much for your time and your perspective and, uh, and thanks for, above all for the music. And hopefully we see you sometime soon here in Michigan on tour. Yeah. I know we will both be there and uh, we'll be the two guys in the back, just losing our minds. Right. <laughs> I look forward to it. I'll see you guys then. Thanks, thanks for joining Jim. us, Jim. Awesome, man. Thanks guys. Well, that was pretty cool, huh, T? Awesome. I mean, uh, you know, cool of him to join. You know, loved hearing 
you know, how in depth he got on his history within music as a whole, uh, the history of his really two bands that he's most known for. Uh, that was a real treat. Absolutely. Well, see, let's uh, bring episode 46 to a close the way we do. And that is by figuring out what is in your head. Let's do it. Two times. T, three songs that are ringing in your head right now. Go ahead. All right. The first is uh, one of my favorites from Jamiroquai. This is called King for a Day, which was the closer of the album Synchronized. And I think it was there, his, there. I don't know whether to say his or there. JK kind of is the thing. But, um, you know, it's their last good album, I think. Really good album. And King for a Day is an awesome closer, particularly the end of the song with the strings. And it's always a go-to. I, don't, I try not to go too long without, without that one. Second is, uh, you know, you have these, these uh, bands that everybody knows the band and everybody knows the song that they're famous for, but few people know sort of the secondary hit. And this is one of those secondary hits that I love saying, hmm, that's great that you love Cult of Personality, but have you ever heard Open Letter to a Landlord by living color. And, ah, I love uh, that one. Love that. And, one. uh, you know, many people are like, yeah, I know it. Many people are like, no, I don't. And then you play it for them and it's like, wow, these guys were a legit good band. Right. So open letter to a landlord. Fantastic. The third, since it's starting to get a little sunshiny and a little warm out there, nub, even up here in the old mitten, uh, you start to get into some of these summer jams and a good summer jam for me, particularly when I'm you know, rolling with the homies out there, you know, riding laid back out there as I like to do is, uh, you haven't done nothing by the great Stevie wonder who is always truly a wonder. What do you got? Nub? <laughs> it's a excellent choices T. I've got, first, I've got a song from the sense field album living outside an album. I know you're very fond of, I think it was one of your albums of the year. And that is Indeed. feel what you feel dug that one this week. And I, Really enjoy that one. Uh, next would be the song Tomorrow by the band James, you know, who's most known for that one song called ah, Lady. Man, but, you're, you're, you're really hitting all my buttons today. I, you right? know, I'm a huge James fan. And Absolutely. Just new material, I believe, either very recently or, or forthcoming uh, from those. I think it's forthcoming from those guys. So Excellent. Well, we look forward to that. And third would be In the Heart of the Young, the closing title track of the second album from our good friends, Winger. Wow. Hot, hot in your head by you, Nub. That, you went, I tell you, you went three for three on that one, in my opinion, buddy. Well coming done. in hot, coming in hot. Episode 46 was a memorable one. We want to thank Jim Ward so much for joining us. We, we want everyone, to, of course, to check out the featured album, Sparta Porcelain, but the new album, Trust the River, is uh, well worth picking up. And of course, the new Jim Ward solo album will be coming out in June. And we, and we, we really want everyone to check out the lead single, Paper Fish which is uh, just a fantastic song. And, and uh, man, it was so cool just to talk to Jim about all things Sparta, but all things, the other bands he's been in and some of the other projects. So thank you once again, Jim Ward. And that puts a bow on episode 46. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure and check us out on all streaming platforms and leave us feedback and make a request and all the other things that we love so much about the listeners of our humble little podcast here. So, so, so we ask for all of you to take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And we will see you for episode 47 of Two Twins and an Album. Two Twins and Album. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. 
Until then, take it easy.